This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Welcome to the Ballpark Dimensions podcast with me, Mandy Bellagardi, and beat reporter for MLB.com. And the always lovely Sarah Langs, reporter and researcher for MLB.com as well. And, okay, first of all, was hoping that I wouldn't have to be on an episode with you where I have more of an alto voice than I normally do. Uh, Still hanging on to this cold, which is really annoying. So apologies there. I'm going to try to just alter it by, you know, speaking a little bit higher pitch maybe, and uh, maybe we can alter that. But I thought I was going to sneak it in between episodes and we were going to be great. So ignore that. But that doesn't take away from the excitement of this week, because if we are thinking back in recent memory of when we've talked to each other, I don't know if we've sent as many all caps texts to each other than what we did in this past week. And I know you tweeted out two of them. Uh, People don't be fooled. That's not the only two. We do this uh, regularly. And I think this week was more so than others. And what's crazy is like the things we want to talk about first, probably like they didn't even make the cut in our texting thread because, well, last night was a mess anyway on Sunday night. Um, So there's this ridiculous game in the ninth inning for Sunday Night Baseball. You have re- this comeback and back and forth fight. I dare anyone to tell me that baseball is boring after you uh, watch something like that. Uh, it, one of those teams being the Braves, who I know you wrote about this week, having such an exciting rookie class. We have one of our all-caps texts about Albert Pujols, another one about Mike Trout. Um, So we have so much to get into. And Sarah, I know I alluded to how crazy Sunday Night Baseball was. I am so mad that I was not able to catch all of it because I'm stuck in the Minnesota airport suffering through my 8,000th flight delay of the year. So I was able to catch bits and pieces of it. I was able to figure out that Julio had a big game because I saw Julio and Julio again on your Twitter feed. So I was like, yep, that's that sounds about right. So how about you sort of catch me up on all of the drama that was that game? Yes, yeah, so this actually wasn't Sunday baseball. It was one of the afternoon games heading into Sunday night, which did start an hour later this week, which I was grateful for because I was following this game and waiting for Giants-Cubs on Sunday baseball to start. And every moment I'm kind of trying to keep track of Sunday night stuff, but also keeping track of this game. So the Braves were in Seattle. Really important matchup across the board. Of course, these are two teams that are going to be in the playoffs. We already know that. But earlier this week, the Braves actually took sole possession 
of the Annalise for a day. They had a half game lead. The Mets had at one point in early June led by 10 and a half games. So when they lost control, actually when they were tied with the Braves and then lost control of the division, the Mets became the eighth team in the divisional era to have a 10-game lead and then have another team either tie or overtake them at any point. But that doesn't mean that they aren't going to win the division. Just means that we don't see those leads disappear all that much. So that's just to set the scene. The Mets had already won on this day, on Sunday, playing in Miami. And already, Braves Mariners is so much fun because we have, as you mentioned, Julio Rodriguez, who is the favorite, I believe, uh, for AL Rookie of the Year. Then we have the two NL Rookie of the Year favorites. Spencer Schrider didn't pitch in this series, but he's there. And then you also have Michael Harris II. You also have Vaughn Grissom, who is not going to win but could certainly finish among the top five uh, and certainly will get a couple of votes. So it's a good game. Julio Rodriguez leads off bottom of the first leadoff home run. I believe it was his third leadoff homer this year. Kind of a back-and-forth game. Seattle scores three in the fourth after the Braves scored one in the top of the inning. So we head to the eighth, we head to the ninth, excuse me. And the Mariners are looking to nail down the save. <laughs> but it was six to two. They have a four-run lead. And that's when things got really kooky. So Austin Riley walked to lead off the inning. Matt Olson walks next. We get a William Contreras ground out, Riley to third, Olsen to second. Vaughn Grissom strikes out swinging. Two out. Okay, game is in hand. And then Michael Harris the second hits his second home run of the game. Austin Riley, Matt Olsen score three-run home run. It is now 6-5 Seattle. Two out. Still, hey, game is in hand. All you need, one more out. Paul Seawold comes in to replace Diego Castillo. Eddie Rosario, who was, of course, an MVP in the postseason last year, comes up, pinch hits for Marcelo Zuna. Singles. Robbie Grossman hits a two-run home run. All of a sudden, the Braves are up 7-6. All of the energy is out of the building in Seattle. Ronald Acuna Jr. is hit by a pitch, but eventually the inning ends. Headed to the bottom of the ninth. 7-6. Kenley Jansen is in for the Braves. And the, the Mariners know Julio Rodriguez is coming up. And there was this great shot that uh, Roots Fort Seattle showed of Julio jogging off the field after the top of the inning. And he kind of had this look in his eye, like, don't worry, guys, I got this. So, Sam Haggerty ground out, and then Julio comes up. 
And Julio did not just tie the game. Julio Rodriguez hits a 117.2 mile an hour home run. Oh, wow. That is his second home run of the game. So we have two Rookie of the Year candidates who are both 21 years old. Michael Harris II and Julio Rodriguez, each with two home runs. This was the first game in the MLB history where two guys that young each hit two home runs in the game. And by the way, tie game. But not for very long. So tie friends pop out. And then Eugenio Suarez, who hit his first career walk-off home run earlier this year, I believe on an Apple TV game that went like a handful of innings. Mariners have played some odd doozies this year. Eugenio Suarez, who is definitely in the running for one of the more underappreciated guys in baseball this year, comes up to the plate, hits a walk-off home run, his 30th hour of the year, and all of a sudden it's a game-and-a-half lead for the Mets. Braves game and a half out, and I mean, I hope I did it justice here, but as I am watching this game, the first thing I thought was, there's no way Mandy is watching. We have to catch her up on Monday. Uh, yeah, I'm glad you did, because I saw bits and pieces, like I said, but I, I didn't know all the details that went into it, and one, it is so fun to be able to have two of the rookies that have stolen the show this year going head to head just in general for them to like literally individually be going head to head of who's going to have the bigger day uh, makes it even better for the game and I think it just it shows so much of why there should be such an excitement for baseball moving forward because We'll get to Pujols later, but you see those guys like the the Pujolses, the Yadier Molinas, the Wainwrights, the guys who have been around for as almost as long as we can remember uh, watching baseball. And you look at these superstars and it's like, wow, you're starting to see so many of these big namers start to end their career or just recently end their career. Where is baseball going? Where is What's the direction? Who's going to be the next wave to sort of pick this sport back up? Every day, it seems like we're reminded that the sport is in good hands. And that type of a game is the example, if we're only choosing one, of why. And to see, I think it's funny how you say that you saw Julio and he has this look on his face like, nah, we're good. We got this. I got this type of deal. Uh his swag that he has, the vibe that he has, all of it is the just superstar type potential. Um, he, the, the confidence, everything that is Leo Rodriguez is super exciting to think of what he could turn into. Um, so it, it's, I think it's going to be really interesting to keep watching over the next handful of years to see how he blows up it seems inevitable that he will blow up. And the more that he keeps doing these types of things and having these types of performances and late game heroics, being the guy in the ninth inning who, if he's at the plate, everyone's like, yep, we're good. We got this. He's going to do something. 
the more you do that, like he's going to become larger than life. And I think that can only be good for the sport as we move forward. His personality seems to be perfect for it. Um, and now I'm just, I'm mad that I was stuck at the airport and sitting there just trying to figure out when my plane's going to show up. And I wasn't able to see all of this back and forth because, I mean, I know I'm in the middle of watching one of the closest races, uh, that we have coming down the, the stretch, but the NL East is now playing out to be just as, if not more exciting of seeing two of these teams that have been so good, so fun, going head-to-head really like hardcore over the last few weeks. And one of the key components in that race are these rookies for the Braves. So I wrote about this for us Saturday on MLB.com. I was just trying to contextualize how unprecedented this group of rookies may be for the Braves. They lead the majors in both rookie war from pitchers and from hitters. There have only been a handful of teams to do that for a full season. Of course, the Rays did it last year, which is so Rays because it makes mm-hmm. sense with Randy Roots, Reyna, Shane McClanahan. Mm-hmm. I can totally see how it happened, but I was not aware of it in the moment, so I thought that was so funny. Uh, before that, it was the 07 Red Sox. But the really cool thing, and I kind of alluded to it earlier, is the fact that Michael Harris II and Spencer Schreider are almost guaranteed at this point to finish 1-2 for Rookie of the Year. So I was curious how often that had happened overall. And this is a really fun one for Braves fans. The last time that that happened was in 2011 when Craig Kimbrell, for the Braves, won the award, and Freddie Freeman finished second. Oh, wow. So there's a whole thing where the way voting worked for Rookie of the Year changed in 1980. So writers used to only vote for one guy. And now, as you know, they rank three. So if we just look since the voting changed, which leads to more guys, you know, the second and third place being a little bit more diversified, and so on and so forth, just with more names available. It's only happened three times since 1980. So there was the 2011 Braves, 1989 Cubs, Jerome Walton won, Dwight Smith finished second, and the 1984 Mariners (laughs) coming up again, Alvin Davis and then Mark Langston in second. So overall... That's really fun. But if you start to think more about the Braves, the really cool thing is this isn't a rebuilding team. This isn't a team that is on the up and up. They are, but they also just won the World Series. So overall, there have been seven teams, even if we go prior to the voting change, to have one and two in rookie of the year. The only one of those seven teams that was even coming off of a playoff berth was those 2011 Braves who lost in the NLDS in 2010. So no defending champ has ever had a rookie class this good, which of course makes total sense. 
And again, if we continue on this premise that one of them is going to win Rookie of the Year, there have only been seven players to win Rookie of the Year while playing on the reigning champ. The last one was Steve Sachs on the 1982 Dodgers, which is basically two Michael Harris's lifetimes ago. Just to put that into context, right? Oh, wow. <laughs> Give or take. So the others were uh, Pat Zachary on the 1976 Reds, Tom Tress on the 62 Yankees, Frank Howard on the 60 Dodgers, Tony Kubek, 1957 Yankees, Bob Grimm, 54 Yankees, and Gil McDougald on the 51 Yankees. So basically a Yankee-Dodger thing with one Reds instance in there, which makes sense. Um, but it's just really impressive because we've been talking all year about the impact of especially these two guys. And of course, Von Grissom, now that he's been up as well. But I hadn't really taken that moment to take a step back and realize the fact they're doing this on the team that just won the World Series deserves a little bit more credit. It does. It it doesn't hurt to keep pounding that into anybody who's watching them or anybody who's watching other teams and might watch their favorite team play the Braves once in a while because I don't think it's being talked about enough of look how sound this system is uh, from top to bottom. I, you don't see it very often where a team can stay competitive after winning the World Series when they do have to make some transitions like that. You see Freddie Freeman leave and somehow you have this new class that comes in and they're unbelievable. They have a chance of going one, two in this vote. Um, and so it's not something in passing where you're just watching them, where you really think about it. Like you said, if anything causes you to have to take a quick second to step back and actually realize it, the rest of us really, really need to focus on it a little bit more because it's just, it's hard to really comprehend the fact that you can turn, you can pass the baton in a way and not sacrifice any level of competition. And I know the Mets had a bigger lead at one point in the year. I know it had gone uh, over 10 games uh, of a lead, but the fact that this Braves team fought and clawed their way back into this shows the talent level that they have, one, and two, you start piecing together. I mean, everyone just assumes that the reigning champs are going to be good again. That's whenever you're playing whatever team that was the year before, it's like, oh, well, these are the reigning champs, so they're going to be good. That's not always the case. Um, it's You have this the standard teams who seem to be good every single year, but those one-off teams, it's not always the case that they come back and they're just as good the next season, even though you assume that. And the fact that they had turnover, the fact that they have new faces and it doesn't seem like they've really lost a step in that regard is really, really impressive. It is. And, you know, I think it's a good moment to mention there was a lot of discussion, especially last week, about, 
uh, leads, 10-plus game leads, and teams potentially seeing those dry up, of course, with the Mets and also the Yankees. And I do think it's worth saying, with respect to the Mets and the Braves, that if the Braves were to win this division, this really isn't that the Mets lost it. And they're leading right now. So we're talking about, you know, hypotheticals that may not even come to pass. But when the Mets were a half game out and the Mets fans and Mets Twitter was in a certain place mentally, we can say that nicely. Um, when that was happening, the idea wasn't or should not have been, the narrative should not have been that the Mets lost that lead. The narrative should have been that the Braves are really, really good. And this is a team that really since the beginning of June, I mean, I feel like we forget this team won 14 in a row to start the month of June. Yeah. They have been really good. So it's just a testament to really great teams. And as I've been saying, I really hope that they meet in the playoffs in some way, in some round, so we get a final answer here. But, you know, two really outstanding teams in the Mets and Braves, and it's just been a joy to watch both of them succeed in their different ways. Yeah, that would be a fun matchup if we would be able to get that. That would be that would be really great. But we'll step aside real quick because we can get into we're going to call it our all caps segment because these were the two topics that at least we went back and forth with uh, that we definitely tweeted about because these were two exciting moments from the last week in baseball. So stay with us. We'll be right back. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Welcome back to the Ballpark Dimensions podcast with me, Mandy Bell, Guardians beat reporter for MLB.com, and Sarah Langs, reporter and researcher for MLB.com as well. And Sarah, we'll just get right to it with Albert Pujols because I am just living and dying by tweets and updates and whatever I get. So uh, he is going to get 700. You heard it here first. I am determined to speak that into existence because... I want this to happen so bad just for the inner child in me who, of course, saw Albert Pujols playing throughout my entire childhood. And it's just it's so fun because I think you said it in one of our past episodes of this isn't something that you figured you'd be keeping an eye on maybe as much as we are right now. It didn't seem as attainable. And the way that they have figured out how to play him, how to put him in the best position to succeed. And now it's uh well, let's just say it's working, and now he's really closing in on 700 home runs, which would be so awesome to watch. Oh, my gosh. I mean, as you said, just so much fun to follow all of this. 697 yesterday in Pittsburgh. 
He also hit it like 111 miles an hour with his third hardest hit home run tracked by StatCast. Of course, that goes back to 2015. His harder hit home runs were certainly before that. Unfortunately, we don't have measurements, but he's been so much fun to watch. And seeing the fans, the way they've reacted, I mean, this entire series on the road, there were so many Cardinals fans. And it's really cool to see people who go to the ballpark with a sign that says 697, hoping it'll happen. And then it does. I mean, that's the coolest thing to me. Imagine you plan ahead and then it does happen. And both of the home runs this weekend and a handful of his home runs lately have also been in key moments. I mean, this is a team that is really working right now. They've completely run away with this division with the way the Brewers have been playing. And the home run was a go-ahead home run while trailing in the ninth. And his other home run over the weekend, I believe, tied the game in the ninth. So he has just been not only making history and continuing to go up these lists, but also really helping the team, which I think is also on the list of when the Cardinals signed him in the offseason. I think people probably expected it was kind of like a goodwill PR thing, which is okay and totally acceptable. But the fact he's also been really helping the team lately is just so good to see. Yeah, I mean, all of our inner children in ourselves are like freaking out over watching this type of a chase for him because it's just so fun. It's so pure. It's such a, it's such a great thing for baseball. So um, I've been thoroughly enjoying it. And I know that he's not the only one on that team who's, well, one, older. Sorry, guys. <laughs> it's the only way that I can put it. Um, and also starting to set records themselves. I know you had another stat that you wanted to get to, which we can throw to that now. Yeah, so uh, Yadi and Wayno continue to climb up this list of the most common regular season starting batteries since 1900. They made uh, start number 324 together last week. That tied Mickey Lolich and Bill Freehan for the most common regular season starting battery since 1900. Wainwright is scheduled to pitch on Wednesday, so assuming health, weather, everything else that might uh, play a role, he w- they will be setting that record with a number 325. And it's only, you know, mid-September. They will get a couple more chances, again, assuming health, weather, everything, uh, to add to this record. But I don't think anyone will ever come close to this again. I mean, all of the things that have to go right. First of all, you have to play this long. You have to be pitcher and a catcher who remain teammates for this long which doesn't happen as often in today's game. And again, you have to be like Adam Wainwright and pitch until you're 40, <laughs> like Yadier Molina, and continue to catch at this age. So it's always fun to see the two of them. You think back to 
even when they weren't a starting battery, but when Wainwright was coming out of the bullpen in those 2006 playoffs, of course, I think of the moment uh, when they won the NLCS in Game 7 over the Mets. That curveball from Wainwright to Molina, jumping into the arms, everything, they clinched the trip to the World Series and, of course, won the World Series. You think of them as kids then, practically, and then here they are now, and it's just amazing. That pitcher-catcher relationship is so important. It's something so unique to baseball, and they've had, as of Wednesday, will have done this together more than anyone else. Yeah, I mean, this team, not only are they good, but they're really, really special in that regard, where you have these players who are doing incredible things, who are older, who are just, it's just like these legends of this game that have been around for so long. So this has been really enjoyable to have those types of topics to talk about. Um, but we we uh, can transition to our second uh, all caps text from each other. I think it was Friday when I was sitting there and I was just looking on Twitter during my game and all of a sudden I just saw like Trout Homer, Trout Homer. And I'm thinking, I've seen that a lot, I feel like recently. And so then the next one popped up and said five straight games. And that's when I texted you. I was like, oh, okay. And then I think he did it again on Saturday. So that would be six, right? Um, So that's pretty, let's just say that's pretty good. Uh, So it's just fun to see Mike Trout being the Mike Trout that we all know that he can be and why he is who he is. And that's an Angels franchise record, six trade. And as of when we're talking, is still active. He didn't play on Sunday, so the streak is still alive. There have only been eight streaks of longer than six games. The record, of course, is eight straight by uh, initially Dale Wong in 1956, then Don Mattingly in 87, then Griffey in 93. And I will mention the other seven-game streaks because one was a fan favorite and just last year. Joey Votto homered in seven straight last year. Before that, Kendrys Morales in 2018. Kevin mentioned 2006, Barry Bonds in 04. You knew he had to be somewhere on this list. And then Jim Tomey in 02 for uh, Cleveland. So those are the guys that Trout will be looking to tie next time he plays. But whether it's 6, 7, 8, 9, wherever he ends up, I mean, as you said, it's just great to see Trout being Trout and I just love when he does this. He went out and just casually set an Angels franchise record. I know the Angels aren't great. I know we don't talk about Mike Trout nearly enough. I mean, we do. You and I do. I do, yes. certainly. But generally in baseball, because his team isn't in contention, because he plays with Shohei Otani, who gets a ton of attention, maybe. Mike Trout's almost under-talked about at this point, but he keeps going out and doing incredible things and will always be an important topic for us. That's what I was going to say, is the fact that it might not be the most exciting team when it comes to being in the standings, being in a playoff race, 
you talk about Pujols and Yachty and Wainwright and all these guys who are contributing to a team that's really good right now who's looking like they're going into the postseason. You start looking at that type of stuff, and then the Angels, they don't have that same excitement to them, but it's always nice, one, whenever you can bring that excitement just to an individual. Hard not to have that when you have Mike Trout and Shohei Otani, uh, which still blows my mind that this team isn't better, but I digress. Um, but then you just go into it. Hit streaks. Hit streaks are fun. They're difficult. You think about how difficult it is to just get a hit every single day for however many number of games in a row. A home run in a game, and a home run streak, I should say, in X number of games in a row is so much harder. And I think that is such a draw for fans to go to the stadium go watch the, the, the team play, even if they aren't in the middle of September competing for a spot. You want to see if Trout's going to hit another home run. It's sort of like a pool holes type of thing. Maybe you can have a sign sitting there like, all right, I'm ready to go for seven straight, and I have that sign. It's that type of excitement that can still happen in baseball, whether that team is competitive or not, um, and that makes it a lot more fun. So I do like this. I'm excited to, to continue it. I hope that he can keep going because, as we know, uh, I always root for history. I always root for exciting storylines in baseball, and I think that's definitely going to be one of them. Um, but when we, we can step aside now quick and we can come back with our favorite moments in baseball from this past week. I know I'm struggling because I have three in my brain right now, oh, and I'm, I have like this foot race going on, so I think I know which way I'm going to lean, but if you steal it, I might have to go to a backup. So... We'll find out if Sarah, Sarah steals my idea when we come back. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome back to the Ballpark Dimensions podcast with me, Mandy Bell, Guardian's beat reporter for MLB.com and Sarah Lang's researcher and reporter for MLB.com as well. And Sarah, why don't you just start us off by doing your favorite moment from baseball this past week, and we'll see if I can keep, I think, what is number one for me right now, which might still change regardless of what you say. <laughs> I don't think you're going to have the same one as me. So this is just something that really stood out to me. I had a lot of fun with and involved uh, digging down a sort of YouTube rabbit hole. So, Mark Canna hit his first career grand slam the other day, uh, I think on Saturday. And I was sitting here watching games, doing my thing. And uh, my best friend, Haywan Park, sent me this ex of uh, SNY tweeted out a video of Mark Hanna saying post-game that his first big league hit was inches short of being Grand Slam, and he hasn't even come close since. So my mind immediately goes, okay, I have to find this. I need to know if that's really true. 
I can't really prove if it, have, it hasn't been close since, but I need to see that first hit. So here I am at like one in the morning on YouTube finding the game because it's before even all of our StatCast tracking. And indeed, there he comes up with quite the haircut. And it's his second career at bat. And they say, okay, the bases are loaded for Canada. And it went, so you went to Oakland this year. Went to right field. You know how the wall is really tall at one point? It yeah. basically went off the top of the wall. And it was almost, almost out. And he is standing there on second, clear the bases. And, you know, I love always how much these guys remember every single moment of their careers. And that's why I wanted to bring this here because it's always amazing to me that Mark Hanna can stand there and remember, I know it was his first career hit, but to remember such details of this hit in 2015 when he had 5 million things going through his brain because it was his second career at bat. I just love that long memory that baseball players have. So this is what stood out for me. What stood out for me uh, in you telling that was the fact that I've never heard a more perfect definition of Sarah Langs than I was uh, down a rabbit hole on YouTube searching for something that's not really searchable <laughs> at one in the morning. So uh, if anyone's wondering what Sarah is like, that is, that is Sarah to a T. Um, so, okay, you're right. We didn't have one because I didn't have a rabbit hole to go down at one in the morning on YouTube. So, um, I, I have a couple just because like the, the people who caught Albert Pujols' home run and whenever they tried to return it to him, he was like, no, you guys keep it and sign balls. And I think that they just had a death in the family, like all these types of things. And so it just was great. All of those things. That was really close for me, but as we know, I have to go the children route as much as I possibly can. And I know you know I wanted to go with this anyway. I I could not get over the clips that I saw of Story Jeter stealing the show of her dad being recognized as a Hall of Famer for the first time in front of Yankee Stadium. And the only thing that anyone cared about and should have cared about was how Story stole the show. He, she's the middle daughter. Um, he has three daughters. And... You have the oldest who was there uh, as well, which was very, I mean, she was funny in her own way. But one, you see the Jeter family get taken in on this golf cart like car coming in to the crowd cheering and Story is there like she's a Disney princess in the middle of the parade. And she is just waving to everyone and one hilarious. The, she has such a personality that you could see from these videos. Um, and then when he's giving his speech, she's just kicking the white chalk of the batter's boxes. Um, and you could see his wife, Hannah, torn of, do I go after her and tell her to stop and make the spectacle in front of however many thousands of people are standing and staring at us? Or do I just hope that everyone just lets her go and doesn't really focus on it? But if you searched Jeter Daughter on Twitter, the videos from the crowd of saying this is incredible was so funny. Loved it. Thought it was hilarious. Um, and then his oldest daughter, Bella, I thought was very funny in the regard that he's sitting there giving his speech 
And all she wanted to do was keep hitting him and saying, dad, tell them about the ice cream. And apparently he had promised them, as he said in his interview afterwards, that if they sat in their seats the entire time that he was speaking, they would be rewarded with ice cream. Clearly they didn't do that. And he (laughs) said, I think they're still getting ice cream right now. So they won. They won that regardless. But she wanted everyone to know that they were going to get ice cream because in a little kid's mind, they don't care that their dad's a Hall of Famer. They don't know what he did. They don't care anything. Whatever. That's just dad. The real focal point, guys, is the ice cream. And I think we all can relate to that. So I thought they stole the show. Uh, rightfully so. Kids should always have the spotlight. And they did not disappoint. I thought they were hilarious. And that was my favorite moment. And I love the video he posted early in the day. Yes. Because this was the first time they ever went to Yankee Stadium. And he posted this video. <laughs> I don't know which daughter was talking because he didn't show them. But he was saying, hey, guys, you know, are you excited to go? And one of them says, well, I don't want to break my leg like you did. Alluding oh to when he gosh. hurt his ankle and I believe the 23. 23- 13 playoffs there yeah and just the fact that he had 3,000 hits he did all of these things (laughs) in his career yes before they were born but did all of these things that I'm sure they've heard a bit about and the takeaway is you stood on that field and got hurt what if I stand there and get hurt I mean I thought that was so perfectly kid and so adorable. So I love that moment. And just, you know, it's really interesting how he has separated his baseball life from his family life. And it's really yeah. cool to see this moment where it all does come together really for the first time because he's a Yankee Stadium with them for the first time. Yeah, in that video, too, he uh, he had said, what are you most looking forward to? And one of them yelled out the food, of course, to eat. Yeah. Um, so uh, they had the ice cream on their mind from the minute that he started uh, talking about going there. And then also asked them how many people they thought would be there. And they said 160, <laughs> which I thought was just such a cute kid answer. Um, and like you said, the the answer about, I don't want to break my leg like you did. Uh, he even laughed at that. He couldn't hold back a little chuckle. And he was just like, I don't think you have to worry about that. I related to it. I was an anxious child. I'm still an anxious person. So (laughs) I feel that on so many levels. That's where my brain would have gone to. Um, So yeah, by far favorite moment. I can talk about kids in baseball for so long and I will stop myself so that I don't. Um, No, it was uh, 2012 when he hurt himself in the playoffs. I just wanted to correct myself. You can carry on now. The the fact checker, the stats girl in Sarah Langs (laughs) needs to make sure that it is all accurate before we go. So now that it is, we can end it. That'll do it for this week's podcast. Don't miss an episode by subscribing on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you're enjoying the show, which we always hope you are, or if you have any suggestions for us, please leave us a rating and a review. Thanks for listening, as always, to the Ballpark Dimensions podcast, and we'll see you next week.